This week's TribCast is sponsored by Entergy Texas has created a hub of resources to connect owners to information, tools, and opportunities that could help them during the COVID-19 pandemic. Visit entergy.com for more. And Texas Macomb School of Business. Join us for Texas Macomb's Presents, a free monthly virtual event series with UT Austin faculty and industry leaders. More at macombspresents.macombs.utexas.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for September 16th, 2020. We're back after a little hiatus. I'm Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics for the Tribune and filling in for Alexa today as your host. Today I'm joined by our Executive Editor, Ross Ramsey. Hey, Ross. Hey, howdy. And two reporters who have been all over our coronavirus coverage for months. Uh, we have women's health reporter, Shannon Najmabadi. Hello, Shannon. Howdy. And politics and justice reporter, Emma Plata. Hi there. First up for this week, we're going to talk about the quality or lack thereof of the coronavirus st- statistics in Texas. It's been a m- kind of an issue that comes up fairly regularly ever since this pandemic started. We've had multiple situations where a big backlog of cases have been reported after the fact. We had the time where the state changed its methods for counting deaths and added 675 deaths to the total in one day. Um, and we've heard from local officials who have said they don't really trust the state numbers at times. These issues were big enough that on Sunday, the New York Times ran a story with the headline, Conflicting Virus Data in Texas Raises Distrust of the Government. And right on cue, the day after that story ran, we had another data issue. Uh, This one had to do with the positivity rate, and a rate that's uh, a statistics that's been important to Governor Abbott uh, as he's kind of considered reopening issues over the past few months. Shannon, you were the one of the folks who wrote about this for us. Can you kind of explain what this new snag was and what's changing in the numbers this time around? Yeah, that was a good intro. I forgot about some of those issues along the way. So this issue Monday, it's a little bit wonky. So sorry about about all the jargon that's about to come. But basically we on Monday, wonky. we started posting <laughs> three positivity rates. And so, you know, just as a refresh, the positivity rate is the ratio of tests that come back positive. Like you said, Abbott has said anything above a 10% is a red flag. Other health authorities like the WHO want something much lower, around 5%. So under normal circumstances, if you have a high positivity rate, that could indicate you're not testing enough. But we've had some problems with our positivity rate to the point that we had backlogs that essentially rendered this metric impossible to accurately calculate. And that's basically when this effort to start posting multiple positivity rates began, according to DISH's officials. So this summer... um, Around August-ish, we, you'll probably remember we had this huge backlog of tests that was disclosed, more than half a million tests. And some of these had accumulated because the state system couldn't process enough tests each day. And some of them accumulated because there were these errors importing or uploading test results. And that could be something as minor as like a question mark in the wrong field. Um, so just kind of like technical problems reconciling the data. So in addition to just having this backlog, which in itself you could say is a problem, it really screwed up the positivity rate because now you have tests from this widely variable time period 
all being included. So you saw this pretty quickly on the dashboard where the positivity rate soared and then it plummeted. Um, and this explanation is where it might get a little bit verbose. So basically the way the positivity rate was calculated before, it was based on the date uh, the health agency got the test results. Um, and that basically means that they are getting just, you know, the way it works with the backlogs and also with more routine delays, they could be getting the results days, weeks, months after the tests were administered. And so then the new way that they want us to look at the positivity rate, um, like the rate they're pushing is based on the date the test was administered. So this basically means that it might come in a little bit slower. So data won't be as in, as you know immediate as it was before, but they're thinking this will be far more accurate. Um, yeah, I mean, it does seem like this. A, yeah. It does seem like this makes sense, right? I mean, you don't want to count a test that happened in April, but for some reason is just now being reported now in the measure you're trying to get of how widespread the virus is today or this week or things like that. You know, I think that um, that makes perfect sense. I think one of the questions to ask here is, is why did it take six months, you know, to get to this point? And, uh, you know, if this were an isolated thing, you you could possibly see it as a situation where, okay, they're refining the data, they're making it better. But, you know, as I, I mentioned, there have been these questions about the reliability of the data for a long time. I mean, Ross, in your column today, you, you compared it, you know, it's not uh, flying blind, but it's flying with instruments that maybe aren't the most precise or that you can't trust the most. Well, the problem even with the new measure is that you change the positivity rate for a given day as reports about that day come in. So if I'm trying to figure out what my positivity rate was on September 9th and, you know, today's September 16th and I get a new report for September 9th, I change the number that I had before and it changes over time. And, and the problem with the old system was that sometimes these take days, weeks, or even months to come in. So that number is gonna change over time. If on September 10th, I'm a governor and I'm making a decision based on my positivity rate for September 9th, then, and that number changes subsequently because new reports come in, you know, until October or November, it's gonna turn out that I was making my September 10th decision based on bad information. I'll eventually have an accurate number for September 9th but it won't be necessarily in the decision-making timeframe. I think Ross makes a really good point. It's really easy to get lost in this and kind of all of the new metrics and stats that we've had to learn over the last few months to think, okay, positivity rate, it might be a little delayed, it might be a little wrong, but these are, the governor, Governor Abbott has said that the positivity rate is one of the major metrics he's tracking. And this is when he's making decisions about whether restaurants can be open and at what capacity, whether schools can reopen. It's also something that individual school districts are looking at and parents are looking at as they make these critical decisions for their families. So uh, it, there are high stakes, I guess I would say, to getting these numbers wrong. And one of the things that we saw when they revised this metric is that it had been different than what we thought it was in past times, right? There were times, you know, particularly when we were going through the reopening process where the rate was higher than what was being reported at the time. Shannon, do you have any sense as to whether this would have impacted things? I mean, is there is there is it going too far to say, you know, Abbott or other people might have done things differently had they had these different numbers at the time? I do think 
so let me tell you what they said first. So I had asked, you know, we know that there are these long lags when we get the test results back, like that it takes to upload test results. So why wasn't there concern about the positivity rates before? And they basically said something that wasn't totally clear, but, you know, we have to make decisions based on the information we have at the time. And I guess part of the system upgrade let them better able, let them track test results by the day they were administered. So apparently that's a new functionality. But um, I think that something that they're messaging now is that isn't one metric that is, you know, the metric that we should be watching. You have to look at this. You have to look at the dashboard as indicative of trends, not as individual data points, if that makes sense. And they said that that's what they're messaging internally and externally now, presumably internally to the governor, that you need to look at the whole host of metrics and um, just, you know, kind of view it more holistically, which I think is interesting because that's not how it was talked about at the beginning. Um, the one one thing that I will say is that they basically tried to make the point that even with this new positivity rate, it did kind of follow the same pattern as the one that was being posted publicly until about August when you had this huge backlog um, disclosed for the first time. And we did hit, we did hit certain numbers higher, like, or I'm sorry, sooner than we thought we did. But um, in terms of like pattern, it was kind of, it wasn't like spiking at different times. Can I ask a wonky question about that? Was that an adjusted pattern? I mean, we'd been watching an old reporting system and then we supplanted it with a new reporting system and then it turns out that they more or less track, but did we apply the new system to the old numbers to see what, you know, what we should have been seeing on May 8th, but what we were seeing on May 8th? I mean, does it still track? Uh, I guess I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. You mean, did they go back and like refill it in so that we have a, like a path comparison? I guess I'm curious, since in August we got all of these late reports, if we had gone back and applied those to the dates that they should have been reported and see how that oh, matches. If, right. if we assign those tests backwards, I'm actually not sure right. the status of that. Let me follow up on that because that's a really yeah. good question. Yeah, I, I think the point about kind of looking at all these numbers together holistically and looking for the trends makes sense though. I mean, what we've learned over these six months or so is that the um, any one number has problems, right? If you if you want to look at just kind of raw number number of cases, well, that can be impacted by how many tests are available and how many people are getting tested. Um, the positivity rate we already described the problems. If you want to look at hospitalizations or deaths, which is obviously harder to kind of fudge, but they're a, a lagging indicator, right? And you know, uh, not necessarily indicative of. They're more indicative of what the spread was two three weeks ago than they are of what. Uh, is going on on the ground right now. But if you kind of look at all those things and all those things are saying similar, you know, giving similar ideas of kind of what's going on out there, then maybe you can start to draw some conclusions. And right now, looking at those that data, it does look like we're on somewhat of kind of a downslope, right? Things are looking better. Um, that's been the trend. We're seeing the increase of cases every day, that number is getting smaller over time. Hospitalizations are going down. Um, better does not mean good, I think is an important thing to emphasize. We're still far higher in, in all the bad ways than we were around May 1st when the governor first initiated reopening. Um, so 
trending in the right way, but my sense from experts is that we're not at all out of the woods and they are still urging kind of the same precautions that we've been hearing about for months, mask wearing, hand washing, social distancing. Yeah, I um, we're in the middle of the Texas Tribune Festival right now, and I had a panel with some of the uh, university chancellors, and that was one of the things that we talked about a little bit there is that, yeah, it's, it is on the downslope, but going back to March when things were starting to shut down, it's clearly more widespread. One of the stats that kind of came up in that meeting was that uh, in, in March when the University of Houston had shut down, there had been seven total confirmed coronavirus cases in Harris County, seven total. That, that wasn't even for that day. It was cumulative. Wow. And now we're talking about hundreds of cases a day. So, so yeah, clearly it depends. If you're looking at, you know, the peak, you know, the post Memorial Day surge, we're looking a lot better. If you're looking about at when we decided to start shutting things down originally, uh, it's still a lot worse than it was for sure. And I think, like, you know, and I can probably talk to this, but I was just talking to a local official right before this. And I think that their attitude is kind of like, yes, you know, thank goodness we are doing better, but our schools aren't even meeting in person yet. We're still online. So you were waiting for the, we're waiting for what's to come. Basically, no one's like exhaling with relief. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, Emma, one of the things I didn't put on your job title uh, when I introduced you was Bumblebee. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, uh, Honeybee. Sorry. Honeybee, I'm sorry. Yeah, Honeybee, excuse me. <laughs> Um, but that you were given that title after you spent uh, a day in first day of kindergarten in, in a in a Texas classroom. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what it's like in the schools right now, or at least the schools that are doing in person classes? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So just to start off with a kind of a statewide overview, our sense is that um, a lot of schools are offering. There are a lot of schools that are offering in person, but that does not necessarily mean that a lot of students are in those schools, right? We know that, um, just kind of give anecdotal examples, in the hard-hit Rio Grande Valley, parents and families have been a lot more hesitant about sending their kids in person than they have in um, places that were comparatively better off, like a small district I spoke to in the Texarkana area. So we know that families across the state are making different decisions, and for the most part, districts are letting families choose. Um, I was in a a wonderful kindergarten classroom in Louisville ISD in the North Texas area, and I sort of went there looking for differences, and I was struck by how much was kind of the same as what you might expect on a typical first day of kindergarten. Um, The teacher was careful. She was, you know, these are five and six-year-olds, right? So as you expect, you are constantly reminding them that masks go over your nose and that they are not slingshots and that they are not chin straps. Um, (laughs) But she was giving these little admonishments in the same way that you might chastise a student for speaking before raising their hand or, um, you know, standing up in the middle of instruction, that kind of stuff. If it was just seemed to be baked into what she was doing. So, There are a lot of concerns to come. I think that most experts say there's kind of no way out of um, reopening schools leading to greater cases in the community. It's almost it's hard to see a way that it decreases things, right, or even leaves them the same. So a lot um, to come on that. We know that there are cases popping up across the state. So I guess check in, check in soon. (laughs) Yeah, and one of the things that has been... uh open for a little bit longer is the the universities. And, and, and I know that we've spent some time trying to kind of figure out what the effect that has been. And 
you know, again, like a, a challenge with the data that we have. But one thing that we can look is if you look just kind of around the, the nationwide hotspots, a lot of those hotspots are college towns. And that doesn't seem like a coincidence. But um, I mean, Emma, Shannon, you guys have been have been trying to keep an eye on this. Are, are we starting to see any of that possible uptick, uptick already? Or, or is it still soon too still too soon to tell? I think if you look at the counties in the state where there is um, a majority of students, I mean, we know that there are clusters on campuses. We know that there are hundreds of cases on campuses. Uh, the New York Times is tracking cases at colleges and universities across the country. And I saw yesterday that Texas was leading the nation in cases, obviously a big population, but um, California with a bigger population was nowhere close to as many cases as Texas was reporting. Um, in another plug for the Texas Tribune Festival, we had a panel um, on over the weekend with the interim president of UT Austin. And President Hartzell was saying that so far, while there have been clusters on campus, he is talking to local authorities here in Austin. And so far, they, they don't think that campus clusters has um, contributed to community spread. So we're early, you know, it's only September. There's a lot more to come. Uh, I think it's kind of the same as the case with K through 12 education. It's hard to see how this makes things better or even keeps them the same. Um, so another one to watch, I would say. Yeah. Speaking of the the, the festival, I was struck in, in my conversation with the chancellors, uh, Chancellor John Sharp. One of the things that he pointed out was, yeah, we've got a bunch of cases among students, but none of our faculty have tested positive yet. And that's who we're really worried about because our students are young and they're less likely to, you know, get seriously ill from this. But once we start seeing faculty get sick, that's when we might be a little bit more concerned. You know, I'm not sure how the public health experts would feel about that idea, because obviously if it's spreading quickly around students, as long as you're not, if you're not completely isolating those students from the general population, then that could lead to spread other, other ways. But, you know, at least this was over a week ago, but at the time they were feeling pretty pretty good about how things were going so far. I, don't the know, like I, have to, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that not necessarily like the good feeling, but experts have said similar things about when they expect, you know, college reopening, school reopening to be reflected in the data where it's like there's a certain period where your younger, healthier population might get sick, but then there's a delay after that where you might see the people more susceptible to getting sick from the virus that they interact with, get sick and, you know, progress through the virus. Yeah, I mean, we, go ahead, Emma. I was just going to say, we know that overall there are uh, less severe outcomes for younger people, but we also have to stress that we just there we just don't know anything about this disease. There's so much we don't know about lasting impacts, and I think all of us have heard the horror stories of 25 year old marathon runners who barely came off the ventilator, and um, you know, football players with lasting heart damage. Uh, we were checking on our news editor, Rebecca Allen, because we heard that there are a lot of cases among the LSU football team. Um, these are young, healthy people, but that doesn't mean that, um, that, that they'll have good outcomes from this in all yeah, cases. And, and we had an interesting story in our site today about what's going on at UTRGV. And, you know, it's kind of served as a reminder that the UTs, the A&Ms, the Baylors, the, these, you know, colleges that are very residential in scope, um, you know, where you're worried about the parties and things like that. That's actually not how most college students in Texas experience 
college education. And at UTRGV, they talked about how so many of their students are in three generation households. You know, they're living with their parents and their grandparents in many cases. And so, yeah, if your students are getting it, you know, maybe the faculty's not getting it, but are you bringing it home to vulnerable people who are older and things like that? And, and that's that's another challenge you have to have to worry about. Yeah, some of the big schools, you know, uh, that one, uh, Texas State University in San Marcos, uh, University of North Texas in Denton, have huge commuter populations. That's right. So it's basically, you know, if it's transmitting, it's it's got easy conduits. Right. Okay, let's take this time to take a break and hear some words from our sponsors. Lone Star College leads the way in helping Texas get back to working by training tomorrow's workforce today. More at LoneStar.edu. And... Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers strives for Texans to have timely access to high-quality emergency care and champions fair regulation in the industry. More at TAFEC.org. Okay, so we've talked about the pandemic going on. There's also an election going on, and we are now less than a month away from early voting, which is extremely alarming and terrifying for me as someone who edits our politics coverage. Mm. Um, but it's also a big challenge for the people who administer elections, you know, running an election in a pandemic. And we've started to see, you know, continued challenges pop up. This week, one of the things we saw is that we are right up against the deadline, the Saturday deadline for ballots to be finalized and sent to overseas and military voters. But, you know, some counties have actually already sent those ballots. But on Tuesday, the Texas Supreme Court threw a wrench in those plans. They issued a ruling that three Green Party candidates for um, two statewide races, including the U.S. Senate race and also a prominent congressional race, must be added to the ballot. A judge had previously ordered them off the ballot after the Democratic Party had sued. This came a couple of weeks after the Supreme Court ruled that 44 Libertarian Party candidates must remain on the ballot uh, because the GOP basically missed the deadline to try to get them kicked off. This has voting implications. This has election administration implications. It also could have political implications, given that we're facing the possibility of a competitive election statewide this time around. Ross, what do you kind of see as the most significant part of, of this ruling? Well, I think, you know, there's a reason that the major parties are fighting over this. You know, the, the conventional wisdom here is that, and, and I say conventional wisdom because, you know, part of this is really, really fuzzy. This is worse than health numbers. Um, but <laughs> the conventional wisdom here is that libertarian candidates, if they take votes away from anybody, tend to take them away from Republicans, and that Green Party candidates tend to take them away from Democrats. So if you're in a close race and, you know, it's going to be decided by a relative handful of votes, and this third-party candidate might get that relative handful of votes, it could swing a race. Um, and there are instances of this in, in Texas elections, you know, where a, a libertarian candidate got more votes than the winning margin for the Democratic candidate in the race. Um, and, you know, over the, over the years, it's been more and less influential. You know, I tend to think that it's probably a little bit less influential now because we're as polarized as we are. It's more influential when there's a bunch of independent voters out there who are looking at product A and product B and aren't particularly happy with it, uh, with either one. So they say, well, hell with it. I'm going to vote for product C. Um, but, but the reason that you put people back in this time and the reason they're 
fighting so, you know, um, vociferously about it is because a lot of these races are supposed to be close. The Democrats think that they have some shot in the Texas House at 18 seats. I think that's a pretty optimistic forecast. But, you know, if that many races are close or within striking range and you put libertarians in a bunch of them, you might win some races you weren't going to win. The Republicans obviously thought the same thing because they were trying to get those libertarians out of those races. Um, you know, it looks like the the third party candidates, for the most part, are going to be on the ballot this time. And we'll see on November if there are races where winners come in with less than 50 percent. There usually are. Um, and if a third party in those races has more votes than the margin between the winner and the loser, this is going to be an arguing point, you know, as we argue our way out of the, these and other election results. Ross, one thing I've been wondering about with this is how new are these fights? I mean, part of this is based on a 2019 law um, saying that the, the third parties had to file fees. So the option of these lawsuits may, may not have been available to the major parties in the past. But I also just wonder about, you know, it, are we seeing this because it's the first time anyone really cares about these like two to three percent of voters who are going to vote this way because in the past two to three percent was a small margin when republicans were winning by nine percent or twenty percent or, or whatever you know this cycles around if you've got close you know when you've got close races and it depends largely on how competitive the the parties are district by district um Donna Howard, who's been in the House for a long time, came in on a race like this. There was a libertarian in the race. She beat a Republican by just a few votes. Um, her uh, campaign consultant was an old friend of mine named Kelly Farrow, who's passed away now. But he was really good at getting libertarians into races where Republicans were winning narrow victories. So there was a cycle of elections in the first decade of the century. There's a cycle of these elections in the in the 80s and another one in the 90s. It kind of comes around as races get close. Yeah, you get kind of a funny situation where you've got the Democrats maybe giving some help to the libertarians and the that, you know, uh, nice alliance between the Green Party and the GOP, you know. But, <laughs> uh, Democrats were, were uh, not happy about this ruling. And, you know, not too long before we started recording here, sound a statement talking about how this is basically the Republican Supreme Court, you know, trying to help their party in the election. Um, we've also seen the Supreme Court uh, on that same day yesterday issuing a ruling uh, say, uh, saying Harris County can't send 2.4 million applications for mail-in ballots to all its registered voters. And, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of seeing the Democrats crying foul here, saying these, these rulings are more uh, politically motivated than motivated by the law. I mean, Emma, you're a Supreme Court watcher here. Are, are we seeing uh, the heavy hand of politics in this? It's funny, you know, everyone remembers that the Supreme Court justices are elected as partisans just after they get a ruling they don't like. Um, after that, it kind of fades from everyone's uh, memory. But I do think, interestingly enough, the, there are four Supreme Court justices on the ballot this year. And this is one of the races, one of the statewide races where Democrats think they have a shot. They have some polling. We always, you know, have to take many grains of salt with internal polling, but they have internal polling showing them actually running pretty close. And uh, 
this is a good campaign issue for them, right? I mean, how do you campaign against a Supreme Court justice that no one has heard of? It's a lot harder than campaigning against a Supreme Court justice who just did a terrible thing that you could yell about. So um, Mm -hmm. they're getting rulings they don't like. They're also getting campaign issues they do like. It's kind of an interesting time um, to be a Democrat running for Texas Supreme Court. You know, the heavy hand of this Republican Supreme Court is also the hand that put 44 libertarians back on the ballot. <laughs> That's right. You know, right. If, if the other side wins 44 and you win three, you lost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a, a, net, uh, a net gain of 41 for the Democrats. <laughs> right. Um, so there is also kind of an election administration issue here. I mean, we, we had, you know, and actually Harris County falls into this one too. Harris County said in a filing for the the third party's case that it was too late to add these Democrats to the ballot. Um, you know, uh, mail uh, overseas ballots have already been sent in some cases. And now basically they've been told, the county administrators have been told by the Secretary of State that they need to send kind of replacement ballots with a with a notification saying, people who received these other ones need to destroy their ballots without the Green Party candidates and send out new ones, which just kind of sets up another, you know, another way that things could go wrong this November. You know, we talk about how the state's not particularly great at uh, at doing statistics related to coronavirus. We continue to have headaches with how they count votes as well. How much should we be freaking out about uh, how how the state is going to be able to count these mail-in ballots in in November. You know, I think the freakouts on November 4th. You know, if I if I'm in a tight house race and I lose by 12 votes and it's because the uh, libertarians stole my votes, I'm going to litigate it and I'm going to start where you just stopped. Um, and you know, see if, you know, maybe all those libertarians overseas in the army um uh, didn't get their shot, or the ones who were going to vote for the Greens didn't get their shot, or you know whatever whatever argument is to my advantage. I'm going to take every uncertainty in this election and apply that in my litigation. And I, I, you know, frankly, you know, we see a little bit of that after every election. I think you know we could see a fair amount of that kind of fuzz this time. And also, we um, we as reporters, we like to talk about election night. I think this is just another great time for us to remind ourselves and our listeners that this is not going to be an election night that gives us a lot of certainty, you know, at 8 p.m. when the polls close, right? We are going to be counting for days, maybe weeks. We are going to be litigating, certainly, for even longer. Like, this is not going to be a short, one-and-done process. That's right. Well... Plenty of time to worry about that and and talk about it in future TripCast. I think that's enough for us today. So thank you to uh, Ross, Shannon, and Emma. And thank you to our sponsors, Intergy, Texas Macomb School of Business, Lone Star College, and the Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers. We'll be back next week and see you then.